All right. Good morning. Good to be with you. If you're visiting, glad you're here. Uh, if this is like your first Sunday here with us, you picked a really good day to be here because we're starting a brand new series in the book of Exodus. As, as a church, we believe the Bible is God's word, and so what we do on Sundays is we just open God's word, and we pick uh, a book or a part of a book, and we just read straight through it, verse by verse, line by line, not skipping over anything. Uh, we want you to be able to see for yourself what God's word says, so that you can then understand it and, and form an appropriate response to it in your own life. And so Exodus is an incredible part of the Bible, an incredible chapter in the history of God's people and God's work in the world. Uh, we have Moses and the plagues in Egypt and the Passover and splitting the sea and all these amazing things. We got a pretty good movie out of it, uh, animated movie, Prince of Egypt, good music. You guys seen it? should. Uh, we, uh, it, it's, uh, it's this really powerful story because it's the story of God's people being set free by God's mighty power and because of his great love for his people. That's what happens in Exodus. It shows us so much about the heart of God, uh, what he loves and what he cares about and how he is, and uh, also tells us so much about the experience of God's people. Um, and it's the same story that God repeats in a far more significant way in Jesus. Just like God sends Moses to his people, God sends Jesus to us, and Jesus sets us free, not from literal slavery, but from a slavery to sin and death by his work on the cross, by becoming our spotless Passover lamb. And, and there's, there's so much in Exodus, there's so much we're going to touch on throughout this series, but that's like the core of it. Uh, now, before we start reading in Exodus, there is something important to understand about uh, the first five books of the Bible. They're called the Pentateuch. Uh, Penta, that's five, like pentagram or whatever. And Tuke, I guess that means books um, or scrolls. I don't read, I never went to seminary, and so I don't read Hebrew or Greek. But anyways, they are called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're not like five books different stories. It's all one big story that is connected and continues, and honestly, the, the main reason they're even split up into five is because of the length of the scrolls that they had, and so it's important because the, the context of Exodus is Genesis. There's so much that starts and is happening in Genesis that is continued and even fulfilled in Exodus, and if you're not aware of those things, um, you miss all these really meaningful things that, that we're meant to pick up on. So it's kind of like if you've, um, like you know the Lord of the Rings movies? If, uh, if you haven't seen them, you have to repent and, uh, and go home and watch them. You can't watch football today, go watch Lord of the Rings. But also, if you haven't seen them, stop listening for a little bit, because I'm gonna say some things about, uh, you know, just give some things away. So let's pretend like uh, you've never seen the movies and you're watching the, the second one, The Two Towers, and you've never seen Fellowship of the Ring, and you get to the scene in The, in the Two Towers where Gandalf shows up. And if you've never seen the first one and you see that scene, you're kind of like, oh, that's interesting, you know? I wonder who this guy is. I wonder what he's gonna do. Uh, looks like he's gonna help him out. This is, this is pretty neat. Um, and then you, you kind of miss out. If you've seen the first one and you know everything that's happened, you know there's actually this really incredible, amazing moment where like, we thought he was dead. 
Like, we thought he was gone, and here he is, he's back, and he defeated this fire demon, and like, he's back on our team, like, how could we possibly lose, and becomes this great, uh, you know, momentous moment. That's what it's like to read Exodus without knowing Genesis. Like, you see all these things happen, and, and you just kind of go, oh, that's interesting, when you're supposed to be going, that's amazing. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're actually, we're going to stop here for now because you need to go home and read Genesis first before we get into. It's 50 chapters, so start now. Um, no, no, we're, we'll touch on the important points today and, and make sure we get a lot of that context. Um, three points I'm going to be making this morning. I don't always do outlines. Today I am. If you like outlines, you're welcome. Don't get used to it. Uh, so three points I'm going to make this morning. One, what God is doing today is linked to what God has done in the past and what God plans to do in the future. Two, God keeps his promises, therefore you must know what God does and does not promise. And three, God is building his kingdom and what God builds will last forever no matter what stands against it. Those are our three points. We're going to read through the first seven verses of Exodus, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll move through one by one. And so Exodus chapter one, starting in verse one, says this, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So that's as far as we're going in Exodus today. It's like there's no, uh, it varies so much how much, today we're only doing seven verses, other weeks we're going to do like more than a chapter, maybe as much as three chapters, and so um, seven verses today, here we are, remember our first point, what God is doing today is connected to what he's done in the past and what he plans to do in the future. Uh, Exodus opens and we see this family, the sons of Israel. Jacob is a man that God renames Israel, and, uh, and he has 12 sons. They all go down into Egypt. Eventually, they die, and, and they, their family ends up growing into this great nation. And again, if you don't know Genesis, you read that, and you go like, all right, it's kind of interesting, maybe. It's a little boring for an intro into Exodus, um, but, you know, this family became a nation. Cool. Uh, but we know Genesis, and so we know it's not just cool, it's amazing. Uh, let, let me remind you the, the surrounding context of Genesis that brings us to this point and what it tells us about what God is doing. In the beginning, God creates everything, creates the heavens and the earth. Uh, he says it's all good. Um, mankind who he creates, in Genesis 3, they rebel against his command. Sin enters the world, and through sin, uh, the creation becomes corrupt, and all these things that are not part of God's original good plan for creation, uh, injustice and suffering and disease and death, all these things enter into the world because of sin, and yet God makes a promise in Genesis 3 as he's dealing with this rebellion where he, he goes, I'm not going to let this stay. I'm not going to leave things the way that they are. He, he says this to the serpent who deceives Eve, and the serpent is Satan. He represents sin and death. He says this, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's plan is going to involve a person who's born from the line of the woman and that person is going to deal with and, and crush the head of the serpent who represents sin and death while the serpent is going to strike at his heel. It's a little vague here in Genesis 3, but as we move further along in the Bible and we get more of God's promises and, and more of his, uh, his revelation about what his plan is going to be, it becomes clearer and clearer this is ultimately a promise about Jesus. It's the first promise in the Bible that we find about Jesus all the way in the beginning in Genesis 3 and then now a little further along in Genesis 12 we meet a man named Abram who God eventually renames Abraham and, and God makes his promise to Abraham. He says, uh, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and that should start ringing some bells for the beginning of Exodus, right? Abraham is Jacob's grandfather, uh, and you know Joseph and the twelve, their great grandfather. And you notice this bit at the end here that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in your family, there's going to be a blessing that appears that's going to spread out to all the other families of the earth. And again, that's a promise about Jesus. Right? It narrows down. There's going to be someone born from the line of the woman. Now we know from the family of Abraham who is going to become a blessing to the world. He's going to crush the head of the serpent who represents sin and death. Uh, God speaks to Abraham a few more times after this initial promise. He says, you and your wife, you're going to have a son, uh, and it's through this son that I'm going to build this nation. And that's like a, it's like a weird thing that God promises because Abraham is super old. He's a hundred years old when his son is eventually born, and his wife is 90. Uh, and so, you know, it's not typically when you think you're going to have kids. It takes, takes a long time for God to fulfill this promise uh, from Abraham's perspective. And, and they end up, after a hundred years old, and his wife 90 years old, and this promise has kind of been sitting around for a while, you're going to be a great nation, and at the end of it, they, they have this one son. Uh, but God promises through this one I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. It says that in Genesis 22. And then his son, he grows up, Isaac. Uh, God gives the same promise to him. Through, I'm gonna make your uh, descendants into a great nation. But even for him, Isaac is 40 years old when he gets married, and he's 60 years old before his children are born. He prays and waits on God's promise for 20 years then his sons Isaac and Esau are born, or not, uh, Jacob and Esau are born, and then Jacob, who, again, who is renamed Israel, and the promise goes through him, uh, his life is just the biggest mess. Like, if you just read Genesis, like, he tricks his brother, and then his brother wants to kill him, and then he, like, goes off, and uh, his, his father-in-law, like, takes advantage of him and cheats him and kind of tricks him, and so he ends up marrying these two women who are sisters, and then they have a competition with each other to see who can have the most sons, and then, like, his sons all kind of have a terrible thing going on. Um, the, his youngest son 
the, the brothers, they all want to kill him, and they sell him into slavery, into Egypt, and he, he becomes a prisoner there, and then uh, eventually he, you know, rises into the position of second in command in Egypt and uh, saves Egypt from a famine and his family, and they all get reunited. It's like this whole crazy thing. You should read Genesis if you haven't. Um, and you see that, you know, uh, Joseph was already in Egypt. We see that picking up in Exodus 1. There's one more promise that you really have to be aware of from Genesis that Exodus uh, wants us to have in our minds. And so Genesis 15, verse 13, God is speaking to Abraham again, and he says this, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. All right? This is what we should be thinking about when we get to Exodus 1, and we go, that there are gonna be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They're here in Egypt. Uh, they're gonna be servants and afflicted for 400 years. We read just one more verse in Exodus and we see that they are, uh, they become slaves to the Egyptians. You know, initially they have a good position, but they become slaves and now 400 years have passed and they're this, this, they've multiplied, they're this great nation and now it's time for this promise to take effect that God's gonna bring judgment on the nation that's afflicting them and bring them out into freedom with great possessions. That's why Exodus 1 should be such a like, you know, amazing, momentous thing that we read and we go, okay, this is about to happen. Like some amazing, incredible things are about to, we're about to see it happen. But what you have to notice is you read through Genesis and we're here in Exodus now, it's clear that God has a plan like, all the, there, it's, it's all happening, and everything that God says happens is going to happen. The plan is in effect, but it's full of, like, so many peaks and valleys and, like, moments of triumph and then moments of despair and confusion um, at so many points along the way. You can just imagine Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob going, God, where are you? Like, what are you doing? It's been years and years, and it doesn't look like this plan, this promise is ever going to be fulfilled. Why are you allowing these things to happen? Why does it feel like you've forgotten me? You might know exactly how that feels. I think probably most people do to have been at a point in your life, and maybe you're there today, where you're filled with confusion and, and you're just want, you just go, man, this can't be God's plan. Like, this can't be where he wants me to be. And so either I'm doing something wrong or maybe I don't even matter to him and, and I just, like, I'm not even part of his, his plans at all. You can imagine that's Abraham at 99 years old. <laughs> Getting to the end of the line here. Doesn't look like it's gonna happen. Or Isaac after 19 years. Hasn't happened for 19 years. Why would I think it's going to happen this year? Jacob, when his brother's trying to kill him and his father's-in-law's chasing him down, and Joseph, when he becomes a slave in Egypt and then a, a prisoner, what we get to see, with the benefit of hindsight and seeing how the, the entire story plays out, we get to see, like, okay, well, that's where they are at this part in the story, but God's, 
still has more for them, and, and we get to see what the whole shape of the journey looks like, um, they don't get to see that in the moment. We see where, where they are is connected to what God's been doing and the promises he's made, and, and we get to see, like, yeah, they're there right now, but this is how he's gonna come through for them. Uh, ultimately, it all leads to God's plan in, in Jesus. It all leads to him. We get to see that, but they don't get to see that in the moment. You don't get to see that today. You don't know exactly what it's gonna look like for God to take you where it is he's ultimately bringing you and, and what your life is, the shape of your life that he's putting together, what that's ultimately gonna look like. Um, the, the situation that you're in today, whatever it is, whether things are going great for you or, or they're not, it's, it's similar to the situation the Israelites are in in Exodus 1 in the sense that they don't know what's about to happen. Like we know, we know Moses will show up. We know the plagues and the Passover and all these incredible things. They don't know any of that. What they do have are these promises that God had made in, in Genesis. The promises he's made to, to their ancestor Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You don't know what tomorrow is going to look like for you. You don't know what the next year is going to look like or the next five years or 10 or 20 or, or however many years you have. You don't know what's going to be. In, you don't know what, what kind of painful, despairing moments you might have. You don't know what incredible joys you might get to experience. But you also have God's promises. See, God's promises are like uh, landmarks that help us to navigate through uncertainty. Uh, they, they tell you about where it is you're ultimately going. They tell you about how it is that God is bringing you there. And they do that because God is a promise keeper. Remember our second point, God is a promise keeper, and so it's important to know what his promises are and what they're not. Um, we already see this throughout Genesis, right? Like, one by one, 100% being fulfilled, the, the promises that God makes to, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and, uh, and now they're in Egypt, and it's been 400 years, and they are slaves, just like God had said would happen, and, and now it's the time for them to be set free, and we know how that happens in, with Moses and, and all the mighty wonders that God does there uh, from, from this one son, Isaac, born at 100 years old, now to this great nation, God keeps all of his promises. When you know what God's promises are, they give you strength to endure. That's what promises do. If, uh, if you've ever seen the show The Office, there is a it's terrible episode where the, the manager, Michael, he had made a promise to a class of third graders that he would pay for their college tuition uh, because he thought he'd be a millionaire by the time he'd uh, it was time for them to go to college, and he can't. But he, he never told them, because he's like, hates giving bad news. So he gets to the school, they're graduating, and uh, they're like, they have this whole display of gratitude for him, and this one kid is saying, you know, throughout the years, it's been really hard, and I've been like, you know, pressured into, into joining a gang, and, and any time I felt that pressure, I thought back to Michael. And, and, and that has enabled me to like stay on the, the straight path and I just know like my future's gonna be great because of, because of Michael. And then they find out and it's terrible. It's hard to watch. But that's, 
you know, he can't keep his word. But you see, like, even in that, like, the, the promise of the tuition being paid, the effect that it had on, on these kids. Um, so God keeps his word, okay? He's not a liar. He's not over-promising what he can't deliver. Uh, God's promises always come true, and we see how those give strength. M- maybe my favorite example of this is Joseph, the, uh, the at-the-time youngest son of Jacob, who is sold into slavery. The reason that his brothers sell him into slavery is because he deserves it. Um, no, not really. You guys thought I was serious for a second. You're, um, he, he doesn't deserve it. He is annoying. Uh, so, like, he's the youngest son. Uh, Jacob favors him heavily, and God gives Joseph these dreams where he's making promises where, where he sees that my family, all my older brothers and, and even my parents, they're bowing down to me in this dream. I'm gonna be leading over them. And so like the favored little brother, he like, he goes tell, he goes, you know what God told me, you guys? Uh, one day you're gonna bow down to me. And so just imagine, you know, what that would be like having your younger sibling, especially when you're like a kid uh, telling you that you're gonna bow down and serve him. And uh, it, it doesn't go well. Genesis 37, the brothers respond. Uh, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They, they s- throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. He goes off into Egypt. He gets thrown into prison. And you just think how strange this has to be for Joseph sitting there in his prison cell thinking, God's made this promise to me and I'm in prison. Either God is a liar and this won't come true or God is a promise keeper and somehow still he's going to bring me through this and I'll get to see how this promise is fulfilled. Joseph believes in the promise and he stays faithful in spite of all these awful circumstances. Uh, Faithful as a slave, faithful as a prisoner, God raises him to second position in Egypt and uses him to deliver the people from a famine and even to save his family who had sold him off into slavery. He sees at the end how God had been working through his life and through his plan, through the peaks and valleys to fulfill his word. It's hard to do what Joseph does. It's hard to have the perspective that he has because the thing we want to know above all else, we want to know why. We want to know, God, why are you letting this happen? What's, what's the reason? Kind of like when you're in traffic, you know, like the it's the worst. When you're in traffic and it's really bad and then it clears up and you start going and like there's nothing there. You know, like there's no, there's no accident or no, no one was pulled over, no construction, nothing like that. And you just get more frustrated because you're like, what was, like this was meaningless, it was pointless. Um, it, if you see something, like even if it's an accident and you like, you hope everyone's okay, but then you're like way more understanding, like it makes sense why I had to sit through all that. We don't always get to know why. God is not always going to make his reasons clear to you for why he allows the things to happen in your life that happen. He doesn't make it very clear to Israel why they had to be slaves in Egypt. 
You know, the, the more you get to read the fullness of God's plan and story through his word, you, you start to see what some of those reasons could be. But, you know, rather than focusing on finding out why God lets certain things happen, it's better to focus on finding out more about who God is, how trustworthy he is, and what he's actually promised. You're gonna drive yourself crazy trying to find the reason why, and the longer it goes when you can't find that reason, the more frustrated you're gonna be, the more bitter you could possibly become, the more hopeless you could possibly become. No matter where you are or what it is you've been through, you can take hold of God's promises for you in his son, Jesus Christ. And those can give you strength. They can give you hope that lets you endure. Do you know what God's promised you? Do you know some of the amazing things that God's promised you? One of the best known promises in the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This promise that if you put your faith in Jesus, that he alone can forgive your sins and make you righteous, you have eternal life. You have the hope of eternal life. All because of his love for you and the work that he does on the cross to pay the debt that you owe so he could set you free. The promise he makes in John 6 where he says if you come to him, he's never gonna turn you away. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You can reject Jesus. You can reject him. You can say no to him. If you approach him, if you come to him in humility and sincerity, he will not be the one who turns you away. Matthew 28, verse 20, the Great Commission, he promises, uh, behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Jesus is with you. He's with us. He hasn't abandoned you. It might feel like he's distant, but he's right there with you. Even in, even in your suffering, and, and you, you feel like God is so distant from you, remember Jesus on the cross. Remember how he stepped into suffering for you. He stepped into the experience of suffering for your sin. Jesus knows what it's like. He's right there with you. Or in Revelation, the, uh, looking at the end of God's plan for redemption, the redemption of all things, yeah, Jesus returns, and God makes this promise about the new heavens and the new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is going to heal every hurt. He's going to right every wrong. It's gonna make all things new. When you listen to all the amazing things that God has promised you, and you see where it is, here's where God plans to take me. I, I have these promises with me no matter where I am. These are the things that reassure you that yes, God does love you. He is with you. You are secure. You are forgiven. You're reassured that following Jesus is worth it. He's worth any sacrifice that you might have to make or, or any loss you might have to experience. God is a promise keeper and you can trust him. Now, just, just as a side note, it's, 
also important to understand what God does not promise you. And, and the best way to do that is to become a student of God's word. You have to be able to read God's word for yourself and, and just see everything that it is that he's saying and, and find out who he is and, and what his plan is. And because there are all kinds of people that if you just let people tell you and you never become a student of God's word and see for yourself, you're gonna hear people telling you things like, you know, God wants you to be successful in life. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be healthy. And, and maybe the way that you do that is you give our church a ton of money. Uh, maybe the way that you do that is you just pray enough and you believe enough, you have enough faith, and then whatever it is that you ask for God, he's going to give it to you. And as long as you haven't gotten it yet, it just means that you haven't prayed enough or you haven't had enough faith. Become a student of God's word because when you look in God's word, you're going to see all over the place, you're gonna see people who are incredibly faithful, who pray, and God does not answer their prayers in the way that they hope he would. Like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he tells us, uh, God gives him something, he calls it a thorn in the flesh, some sort of anguish, and he prays three times for God to remove it, and God says no. You become a student of God's word, and you see all these examples of people who are so faithful, who trust God so much, who, who obey and listen to his word, and yet they are destitute. They end up as martyrs. They have these incredibly difficult lives, and you see all these verses that the people who are promising you health and wealth and all nice things, they're never going to read you those verses. And you're also not going to find in the Bible those pithy little sayings that people love to say, but they're just not true. Uh, one of the worst ones, I think, at least that bothers me the most, um, you'll never find in the Bible the words, God won't give you more than you can handle. You won't find those words, and you won't find, you know, the, the truth of that anywhere. God constantly gives people more than he can handle. Moses complains about that a lot. God gives him way more than he can handle. He does it again and again and again so that people would learn, so that we would learn not to depend on our own strength and ability, but to hand it over to him. You're not meant to hold it all together. You're not meant to be the one who has enough strength and confidence and ability you're meant to surrender and let go and give it to God and trust him with it. The saying should be, God will never give you more than he can handle. We find that truth all over the Bible. There's nothing that's beyond God's ability. There's nothing that we can't trust him with. When you're wrong about what God's promises are, when you're mistaken about that because someone lied to you, or you just have your own misunderstanding for whatever reason, instead of giving you strength, it can make you feel defeated. The longer you wait, and the longer it just, it's not happening, it's not shaping up, you think something's wrong with you, it just deflates you and makes you feel defeated. It doesn't have to be like that. Become a student of God's word. Make sure that you're looking in it for yourself, and you're understanding what it is that God's actually promising you final point for us to cover today is uh, that God is building his kingdom 
and nothing, nothing can stop him from doing it. Nothing can destroy the thing that he's building. Uh, people try. The Egyptians try really hard. The Babylonians try. The Assyrians try. The Romans try. Uh, a few years ago, my wife Megan and I, we were on a beach, and we were just walking along the beach, walking along the water in, in our path. There's this little, like, pile of sand, and, uh, and Megan, she kind of, like, zeroed in on it, and she went, and she, like, stomped it. And then off to the side, she noticed there's a little kid with a bucket, and uh, like he was actually making a sandcastle, and she just flattened it, and like and like totally on purpose, like she like wound up for it, and like really went, and uh, and then she felt terrible, and like thankfully the kid was fine, and the dad was there, and he thought it was hilarious, <laughs> and, uh, and so that it ended up well, but like that. Stop, like, that's what people are trying to do to the thing that God's making. I'm going to stop it, I'm going to flatten it, I'm going to destroy it, and it's going to be gone forever. Um, it never works. Again, so this is a promise that Jesus makes. In Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing can prevail against the thing that God is building. It's going to be successful. It's going to last. It'll be eternal. Nothing can stand in the way of God fulfilling his promises, not even us. That is so uh, re- reassuring and, and helpful to hear. Like, you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and their whole family and everything they do, and you just think, like, God's made these promises, but, like, they're really trying to mess it up. You know, they're doing all these wrong things, they're making all these mistakes, they're, they're not trusting God, all these terrible things happen, and yet... God never gives up on them. He never goes back on his word. He continues to, to build their family into this great nation, and even though they're, they're stubborn and, and difficult, he continues to be faithful, eventually all the way to Jesus. No matter what internal problems, no matter what external opposition, whether that's Egypt or Rome or anything else, you know what's a, a pretty cool parallel for Exodus and then what we see in the New Testament? Um, at the point that Jesus dies on the cross, he has maybe 500 followers. Maybe 500 followers and maybe like 70 who are kind of close disciples following him. Um, Earlier in the Gospels, he had sent out the 72 to preach the good news. And so like 72 close disciples, uh, the Romans, they crucify Jesus. He's the leader. They, they kill him. And it seems like at this point, like the movement can't go anywhere because the leader who is the Messiah and the King and the Savior, he's gone. But on the third day, Jesus is resurrected. He's victorious over death. And at that point, he starts appearing in his resurrected body, this new immortal life that he has. He, he appears to more than 500 eyewitnesses, Paul tells us. That, that's the maybe 500 followers he has at this point. Uh, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples. Peter preaches a sermon and 5,000 are added to their number. Uh, they're in Jerusalem and, and they keep, preaching there, and God's adding more and more to their number, and then a great persecution breaks out against them, and they scatter. 
but in all the places that they scatter too, they start multiplying there more and more, just being faithful and telling people the good news about Jesus and salvation in him, and that good news is changing people's hearts, and people are giving their lives to Jesus. Uh, Christians are like dandelions, where if, if you try to get rid of a dandelion by whacking it, it multiplies by 100, right? The seeds all scatter, and you're going to have a field of dandelions. Um, any, any great kind of external force on the dandelion, it's going to spread and multiply. Um, the only way to get rid of dandelions is to be gentle about it, right? To make sure that it's not disturbed and, and gently pull it up by the root. That's something to think about, you know, if in, if in your own faith, in your own Christianity, it's like you become overly comfortable with, uh, with your setting and your circumstances and where God has you and, and there's, you know, your, your faith is never asking you to risk. It's never making you uncomfortable. Um, think about that. God is building his kingdom. He's still building it. Jesus is building his church. The gospel is being preached and people's lives are being changed and God's gonna keep doing that. We get to work with him while he does that. He's going to add more and more people until we're more numerous than the stars, right? The promise that he makes to Abraham, the, the people, his people that are uh, become his through their faith in Jesus and adopted into the family of God, more numerous than the stars, Wherever you are in your life here today, wherever it is that God has brought you to, you're not at the end yet of of what he's doing in your life. It's all connected to what he's done in the past, what he's done in your life, and what he's done through his son Jesus and all the promises that he's made, right? He's brought you to where you are, and you're not at the end yet. You might be at the peak or a valley, uh, and then ultimately, the end that he's bringing us to in the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal life that he promises. God has a plan. We're in the midst of it, but we see where it is he's ultimately bringing us. We see through his promises that although we can experience the valleys, he doesn't abandon us. He's still with us. He still has a plan for redemption. You might be in a place of, of pain and loss and despair, but that's not the end of the plan. The end of the plan is resurrection and life in Jesus. Our church, we are where God has brought us. We're, we're kind of new. He brought us through COVID. We planted right before COVID. We're we're here in this museum renting space. Who knows where God's going to bring us and, and what it's going to look like as he continues his work here in this church and through us. But God is going to keep building his church. We have that promise. He's going to keep reaching people with the hope of the gospel in his son, Jesus Christ. Just like God frees his people from slavery in Egypt, he's going to continue setting people free from the guilt of their sin and the fear of death all by the work of his son. 
and, and no matter where you are, if, if maybe you are a follower of Jesus and you need to be encouraged this morning that, that God, his plan is still working and be encouraged to look at his promises. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're exploring faith and being here today is also part of his plan for you. There's something that he wants you to hear. There's something that he wants you to know about his son Jesus. I hope that you see who Jesus is. You see what he's done for you. I hope that you keep exploring him so that you can make a decision. Say, I, I do want to put my faith in him. I do want to be forgiven. I want to be his follower. I want the hope of eternal life. We're in the midst of God's plan. We can hold on to God's promises. Let me pray for us.